0: The United Nations Security Council resolution passed in February of 1961 following the murder of Congolese Premier Patrice Lumumba was to have severe repercussions for a company of Irish troops in the Congo later that year. The resolution urged the UN to take immediately all appropriate measures to prevent the occurrence of civil war in the Congo and authorise the use of force as a last resort. This is the story of the effects of the implementation of this resolution. The story of A Company, 35th Battalion, Western Command, more than 150 Irishmen, located at the outpost of Jatteville in September 1961, which came under sustained attack from the Katanganese forces and was forced to surrender. The only company of troops in the history of the Irish Defence Forces ever to be left in such an isolated and unenviable position. Three officers... Joe Leach, Liam Donnelly and Noel Carey and four men, Peter O'Callaghan, Bill Reedy, Tom Cunningham and Bob Allen were all at Jataville, and recalled the experience. Another officer and academic, Terry O'Neill, who also served in the Congo, has researched the event from the initial resolution to its effects today and at the time.
1: At the time morale in the army was low, numbers were low, there was a, a rather depressing scene in the country and we weren't really sure of where we were going and uh, all of a sudden we were plunged into this particular reparation without any idea of what we were supposed to be doing or how we were to do it.
2: There was enormous enthusiasm for their chaps going out to right all wrongs in the world, but those were flavoured with the sight of the, the Niemba funeral in, in uh, Dublin uh, where the chaps who were killed at the Niambah ambush had literally a state funeral.
3: Well, I think few people have adequate conception of the enormous size of the Congo, which covers over 900,000 square miles. I mean, this is a frightening number. But to give you a, a fair idea of the size of it, placed on a map of Europe, the Congo stretches from Paris to Riga, from Riga to Athens, and from Athens back again to Paris. It's 77 times the size of Belgium, or the size of Western Europe. Uh, It was a country of 16 million people, roughly, of whom in 1961 only perhaps 60,000 were Europeans.
1: Just a couple of days after the Congo had got independence in June 1960, law and order broke down, the army mutinied, and there was widespread violence. Many of the Belgians who were there prior to independence had fled and Belgian government reacted by sending in paratroopers to protect their citizens. And at pretty much the same time, the province of Katanga in the southeast declared itself independent. And this was highly significant for a couple of reasons. The first being that it was perceived to generate something like 50 to 55% of the state revenue. And that came largely from the copper mines in the south of the province, And these were controlled by a giant conglomerate called Union Meniere, which was largely controlled by British, French and Belgian interests. And the second point was that there was widespread fear that if Katanga was allowed to secede, this would set a dangerous precedent that all the newly independent countries in Africa and elsewhere, and the ones that were about to become independent would do likewise, and it was feared that this would uh, have very dangerous consequences. So there was particular interest in the Congo and in Katanga secession for that reason.
2: Well, when things back uh, about then, that time, very few of those chaps who went out in the Western Command Company, so there would have been people from Galway as well, you know, very few of those people had been literally outside the country. And I'd say 999 repeating had never been on an aeroplane in their lives.
4: We had never seen planes like this before, which t- took the whole platoon, plus armour cars and uh, supplies. And we flew out, landed in Malta, overnighted in Malta, moved on from there to Huiles Air Base in uh, Libya, where we stayed for two days. Actually, when we landed, the American troops were sure that we were actually Koreans because they had never seen anything like the soldiery. We were actually landing in North Africa, temperature in the 90s, and you can imagine, well, maybe you can't, but at the time, we wore bulls-wool uniforms. We wore grey back, which was the First World War vintage. Soldiers had their numbers tattooed in the front of the greyback. We wore brown leggings and brown boots, peat caps, and you can imagine what that was like travelling around or walking around in temperatures of 90 degrees.
5: Well, when we got there, we arrived in a place called uh, Leopoldville, and we were sent to a transit camp, we were in this transit camp, and Lord God Almighty, with big bulls wool on us, up to the neck buttons, and a big peat cap, and it was as heavy as the uniform we were wearing, and the sweat coming, peeling down of our foreheads. It was brutal. And smart mosquitoes all round us, eating the lard out of us. That's the truth.
3: Well, as far as we were concerned, most of our activity was around uh, Elizabethville itself, which uh, looked like a modern European city. It was built in 1910 out of the bush, and it was a lovely place to be, at least it was when we arrived there. There were... which we got to know later on, places like Jadaville, which was roughly 90 miles uh, out of Elizabeth, which was roughly, say, from Dublin to Athlone. That'll give you an idea. And I suppose this was the only road north out of Elizabethville for 90 miles or further on up to Colwaisy that was uh, tarmacadamed. But outside of that, there was no roads. It was all pathways and rough bush and things like that.
4: I was volunteered to go to De Lolo on a patrol, the object being to bring a minister's wife and his family back to Elizabethville for relay up to Leopoldville. And this was a journey of 315 miles, uh, through half of it through good roads, the other half through the bush. Indeed, we lost an armour car and a truck on the way. And on the way back, we actually travelled through Jaddesville and Colwaisley. At Jaddesville, we were stopped. I happened to be in the front uh, vehicle with our interpreter. We made our way up to a mercenary officer, a Belgian mercenary officer, and he told us that we couldn't go through. So after telling him that we were only on a mercy mission, we were allowed to go through, but it was obvious that the whole area of the Lufira Bridge was well manned. We could see troops dug in on both sides. We arrived back at uh, Elizabethville to be told the following morning at 4 o'clock we were heading to uh, the gendarme headquarters, and the idea was that we would take over the headquarters, that's A company, and my platoon were to surround the building, block off all the roads. All mercenary, mainly white officers, coming in were to be arrested. And the UN then decided that they were going to transfer those uh, officers out of Katanga and back to where they came from, mainly Belgium.
0: That was August 28, 1961, when Connor Cruz O'Brien... Then, the UN Secretary-General's Special Representative in Katanga was among those who launched the operation known as Rum Punch. Its follow-up, Operation Mortar, on September 13th, has been described by Terry O'Neill as a high-risk venture, and the risk was certainly high for the Irish company now stationed at Jatteville.
3: Well, Jatteville came about initially when we heard about it. We were surprised at A Company because... B Company had been detailed to go out there with a force called Force Mida. This Force Mida was a combination of the Irish Company and the Swedish Company. And they went out there to safeguard the white population and uh, to bring them to safety if anything had happened. And after the few days that they were out there, the Swedish commander, Mida couldn't see any reason why he was out there. The whites told him they didn't want him. So he had no purpose to the mission in which he was given. So he came back with his force to Elizabethville and said, listen, that mission that I got doesn't hold together. So I brought all my troops back. It's too far out and too cut off. Uh, So he came back, and within two days, a company were detailed to go out to Jadaville and without any written operational uh, instruction... Verbally, at all, to go out to Jadaville to be there to protect the white population.
1: It's significant because what happened there shouldn't have happened and it highlights the problems created by giving troops an uncertain mission and of assigning personnel who aren't equipped for combat a combat task. And um, the use of force arose from the February 61. Uh, resolution which was passed by the Security Council after the death of uh, Patrice Lumumba, or more correctly, the murder of Patrice Lumumba. This was a highly controversial resolution for two reasons. First of all, there was the reference to use of force to prevent civil war. But civil war was, is, an internal uh, matter. And Hammarskjold, from the outside, had declared that the UN force would not intervene in the Congo's internal affairs. Moreover, some participating states, Ireland, Sweden, Ethiopia and Tunisia, had early on indicated that they did not want their personnel involved in any internal dispute in the Congo. Uh, Second, the reference to use of force raised several problems. Uh, There was the issue, and is always the issue, of how much force was to be used and to what end, and who was to decide. There was certain to be a significant difference between the use of force as interpreted uh, by different contingents. Some would likely act with considerable aggression, others with restraint. This would inevitably create tensions within the force. Also, there would be the problems for contingent commanders on the issue of casualties. Commanders would inevitably be conscious of how home governments and the relatives of personnel involved would not want their personnel to be killed in some faraway place in a dispute about which they knew very little and cared very little. I've sought to get information on the precise reasons why it was sent there and um, they're not at all clear from any of the sources I've tried. The personnel who went there were told that they were sent on the instructions of New York at the request of paul Henry Spock, the Belgian Foreign Minister, who claimed that there was the possibility of attacks upon the white population in Shadowville. But this wasn't really um, a likely event.
3: The whites didn't want us at all. They were very upset by our presence. They thought they were only going to bring trouble into their lives being, being out there. So, uh, once again, we couldn't understand. Like me, though, we couldn't understand why we were out there. And this was reported back by the Officer commanding A Company, Pat Gwendolyn that this was the situation in which he found himself in and should he return or should he stay there and was he going to get a a, a written direction. He was told to stay there to defend the white population if they were attacked and he never got any written instruction of what to do.
2: And it fell to my lot to be first in because it was number one platoon. And when we we discovered that the, the Our transport, but we didn't discover. We knew damn well that unless we got a lot more transport, we just wouldn't be moving. And they scraped up a few things, and I know I packed my entire platoon into a Bedford, an old Bedford lorry, not unlike the ones we had at home, except it it had a a place for an observer uh, over the driver's cab for the firing an automatic weapon. Next. We had to leave, because of the lack of the transport, we had to leave behind the most vital thing as far as we were concerned, our 81mm mortars and ammunition and a 10 days ration, fact rations, uh, for emergency. No, that couldn't come. We dragged a, a little 60mm mortars with us and uh, the Carl Gustav per uh, platoon and jolly old, literally the Vickers of the First World War water-cooled machine, great old things but uh, showing a side of the rage you know and the irony of the whole damn thing is when, as I said, I as with, with number one platoon when we were going in I met the last people from B Company coming out of Jadaville and I wondered and I wondered And I wish them good luck (laughs) and hope for the same for ourselves.
1: Jalaville was part of what was known as the Copper Belt, which bestrode South Katanga and northern Rhodesia, as it then was Zambia now. And there was considerable link between those two areas, tribal personnel, but more significantly, there was this huge presence of copper. There were also other minerals in that area. There was the uranium which the Americans had uh, employed in the bombs used at Hiroshima and Nagasaki.
3: Well, there were some problems we had going out there that I think should be related. Uh, First of all, we had no transport. The only transport we got was sufficient transport to bring uh, the men, their personal weapons, and some ammunition out. Uh, There was American uh, emergency rations, which we uh, should have had. There wasn't enough of transport to get those out. We were told that transport would be supplied a few days later to bring that out. That never came to us. Uh, We were left out there with one truck, uh, one saloon, and two armored cars. And that was what we found ourselves with, 90 miles from base.
4: As soon as we got there, uh, it was on a Sunday, Monday morning, we kind of reorganised, got ourselves, uh, the company commander, got uh, the platoons organised. And very shortly after that, I remember heading into the city or the town of Jeddelford itself with uh, Seacomus Paddy Neville. It was uh, a mining town, very much like what you would see in um, some of the American films, with a lot of adobe kind of uh, buildings there. But outside of that, up towards Union Miniere, which was the, the the mining company, you had the, the native shacks strewn all over the hillside.
2: The next day, Pat Gwendolyn came to me and uh, his wonderfully rich Kerry accent said, Joe, he said, you will go and show the flag. And I said, I will show what, sir? He said, you'll go and show the flag. That's what the UN is here for. So I said, sir climbed into the machines, I mean, two machines actually, and off we went. And we went through Shadowville and got a rather mixed reception, went further down the road, quite a few miles, and came to another of these blessed bridges with a small guard of gendarmerie on And I saw that things could be critical. So we drove on another spot or two, and at this stage I decided that the best thing to do would be to turn about, about, turn, and back across the bridge. Which we did. And I I, I said to the Protono, look, fellas, we're going across this bridge fast. And we did.
3: Pat Quindon decided that, rather than dealing with radio messages, that somebody would have to go into Elizabethville and explain the situation at Jadaville in order to... uh, get the thing revised or give us support or do something. So the doctor, Dr. Commandant Sloon and myself, were permitted by the opposing force to go by saloon into Elizabethville on the pretext that we were injured and that the doctor was coming with us. So when I went into Elizabethville, I met the officer commanding the battalion, at the officers' mess in uh, Elizabethville and at the same time, Mr O'Brien was attending a function there. And I passed on all the message that I was given by my commanding officer, Pat Quinlan, to say that we were surrounded, that we had very little food, we had very little water, we had no supplies, no big supply of arms and ammunition, and it was a very delicate situation for us to be in. I was requested by Commandant Quinlan to request either that he would remove himself out of uh, Jadaville and get back to Elizabethville if we could, or that he would be given reinforcements. So that night I was told to go to bed and, and that reinforcements would be available for me in the morning. And when I got up in the morning, there was no reinforcements. I was told, you have a choice. You can stay where you are or you can go back into Jadaville. So I had troops that I was in command of back at Chaddaville, and uh, I decided that I was going back in. So I was brought back to the Lafayre Bridge under escort from a platoon under Lieutenant McShannon, and we shook hands and said goodbye at the Lafayre Bridge. Well, the Lafayre Bridge was kind of the only kind of natural obstacle, if you like, between uh, Elizabethville and uh, Jadaville, it it was about maybe 12 to 18 miles out of Jadaville. It was a very long ravine, and this bridge covered the ravine, and uh, it was manned as, when I went into Elizabethville that time, and on my journey back, it was strongly manned by the gendarmerie, and they had roadblocks up, and it was uh, a, a very difficult position from a military point of view.
4: Then on um, the uh, Tuesday night of the 12th of September, I was orderly officer. And early on that morning, I got a call at seven o'clock from UN headquarters to state that Operation uh, Martyr had taken place in the city, that the UN had secured all the installations that uh, the uh, operation had been a major success and to inform Comitant Quinlan.
3: That was absolutely crucial because we didn't know that this Operation Mortar was uh, to come about on the 13th of uh, September. And when our position was rushed by the opposing forces on that morning, luckily enough, uh, our company had been dug in there was people in every trench. We repulsed that early attack, and only for Commandant Quinlan's fortitude and planning, we could have been overrun that morning.
5: I was getting going off for my breakfast, and somebody shouted. It was one of the sentries that was on Julio said the villa, That there was an attack. You could see them coming from all directions. Then, when I looked around, we could see them coming from all directions. There was a big golf links behind us. You could see them coming across the golf links and everything, down by the hedgerows and what have you. There. So we immediately took to the trenches. The trenches were due. We Common acquaintance, one great man. It was the greatest thing you did in America.
2: These shafts were coming back from uh, shaving and washing, not being that mass, as I say. And they had on them singlets with the towels around their neck, sort of thing, and they saw a movement the other side of the road, and about thirty of the gendarmerie rushed across the road, at the Vickers. The Vickers was sandbagged but unattended. And the two boys, the sergeants Kelly and Monaghan, dropped down behind it and let fly. And they cut down that attack party.
6: It was of the 13th of September, that I can remember, that's early in the morning. And we used to have mass in the mornings. So we were on their way to Mass. Most of them were gone to Mass but myself and two other men were a bit late and lucky enough we were because just as we were leaving where we were staying the Congolese had entered our compound armed, heavily armed and we had a, a willy's jeep outside of our billet with a Vickers submachine gun mounted so one of the men that was with me was a sergeant at the time jumped up on the Uh, Willie's jeep and fired the Vickers submachine gun into the air now not the the Congolese into the air and they all retreated because they understood that our compound was empty we were all at mass, they were getting information but they were surprised to find somebody there and they, they retreated and it was a couple of hours after then that the actual firing and started, you know I had personal experience because, unfortunately, the uh, trench that I dug from myself was occupied when the when the, the fire did break out, and there was a bit of confusion. So I was kind of left in the open, and I know, haven't been reminded of it now, that we were looking down onto a golf course. No, I had forgotten that, but we we're looking onto a golf course defending that area when I was happened to be shot. But I got leg injuries. Uh, I was shot through the left thigh, and lucky enough, the bullet went through, went up across my stomach, and pierced a small piece of my stomach and straight out. So I was lucky enough.
4: Commander Quinn gave me orders to um, alert the troops. I got into a, a, a jeep, drove to a support platoon. Just as I arrived at support platoon area, the Katangese fully armed troops were disembarking from trucks which were pulled in just across the road. I shouted at them, and they were already moving into position. I drove further back down the road, and number one platoon were just getting ready to attend mass. I roared at them that we had problems and to man their positions. I drove down back towards Perfina. As I was driving, a number of shots rang out, and this was the first really scary moment because were they firing at me or who were they firing at? Next
5: thing the fighting broke out and went on... Of heavy fighting, and the only thing that was a really hampering us was the jet they had. They had the power in the sky where we had nothing, you see, and he could come in and bomb us and strap us and all that.
4: The firing lasted for maybe two hours, uh, and then gradually died down. You can imagine in the Congo, it's darkness, dusk comes in about half five, and it gets dark at six o'clock. So at six o'clock, we were still waiting for our relief column to arrive. And there was no sign of them. And then we said, well, maybe they're waiting for First Light to come through. Common Quinnan sent said word to the company, through the platoon commanders, to have a meeting uh, with him at his headquarters, which he had moved to one of the villas close by. At that meeting, he told us that the column, the um, relief column had gone back to Elizabethville. I suppose the sense of shock was just, uh, you know, unbelievable. How... how How could they have gone back? We couldn't believe that they actually left us
2: in the lurch. On the road and at the corner of our joint platoon areas was a termite mound, and that was cut away, and he caused a a Vickers to be planted halfway up the bloody anthill because it could command the road both ways, and it was very effective. And with the advent of the Fuga, we felt rather vulnerable because, as I said, we were uh, uh, much more compact than we had been. And one of its sorties, it came across and let fly its little bombs right at the anthill, trying, obviously, to take out the vicars. They were a little bit out, but one of the effects... That they had was to literally bury a man in, in, a, in a weapons pit. And we dug out uh, the chap, and one of the men digging him out was a Sergeant Monahan, And and I saw the boy, and I mean boy, he was in extraordinary shock, that's all I can say. He wasn't speaking. Oh, you know what I mean? Shock, shock, shock. And he was a badly shocked if he was dug out of a uh, something that's a very bomb or a, that's buried you in, or an earthquake or something, and it isn't good for the nerves. And I, I I, went off to about my own business, and I said, and I said, will you keep an eye on him? He said, he's, he's not very good now. Take him to the doctor. And, said, and he did. But the strange thing is that he was so good to him. And mind you, Monaghan was a tough man. He's a tough man, I haven't seen but he had this wonderful feeling for people that he cured that boy. He brought him back to some degree of normality, i say, within 48 hours. Mind you, the lad followed him around like a pet dog. I suppose for the rest of the time we were in the Congo.
3: I would go on to say that perhaps the number of the imposing force who were killed in Operation Jadaville is something that somebody should be aware of. They ran into hundreds and we weren't there in the Congo for this kind of thing unless it was absolutely necessary in a full-blown war. And uh, it was something we had to be mindful of. If this continued on, there was just going to be more killing of the opposing force because we were well dug in and our problem was we had no, running, we were running out of ammunition and we were running out of food
5: was rough. Now, six days and five nights non-stop without a sleep or a bit air. Stu, I remember Jack Prendergast. One great man. There's no doubt about it. A man who was in any other army, he'd be a left in it now. He'd, be a, he'd end up a captain, I suppose. He'd be decorated. The man I seen him going around with a teaspoon. A whole platoon of us. Now, don't take any more than a teaspoon for last that stew. That's all we were allowed to take, just to keep it to keep our lips you know, from being parched or whatever. It was the time you we were doing this, in the night.
3: Well, the following days were we were constantly under attack. We repulsed each attack, and when the attacks were repulsed, they got in further reinforcements. And it was estimated at some stage that there was three to 5,000 of opposing forces of one nature or another surrounding the position and firing at us. During this time, there were two attempts made by forces... UN forces to relieve us. But they got as far as the Farah Bridge each time, and each time they were beaten back. So that was a big disappointment to us. But coming towards the 16th, 15th and 16th, there was messages coming back from uh, Elizabethville by radio to us that there were negotiations about ceasefire, and they were at a a very delicate level, uh, so that this arranging uh, of a ceasefire was going on at Elizabethville. And on the 15th and 16th, the opposing forces looked for a ceasefire at Jadaville as well. So uh, our commander, Quindon, seemed that there was ceasefire negotiations going on in Elizabethville when they were sought at uh, Jadaville. Uh, he decided that he would speak to the opposing forces and see what this was all about. So that's what we came across about talking about a ceasefire.
4: The terms of the ceasefire were laid down and made out in writing, and it consisted of a number of uh, paragraphs, mainly that the ceasefire would be put into effect immediately, that the Fuga jet would be grounded, that firing be stopped at the Lofira Bridge, that no Katangan troops were to advance on our positions, that a joint patrol of Irish katangan troops was to occupy no man's land, that a cordon of unarmed police were to prevent sightseers coming onto the site and the gendarme were to withdraw to barracks, water was to be turned on and the police chief was to patrol the native village and assure the natives that all was well. At a subsequent meeting that uh, Sunday afternoon, Manungo lay down, that uh, the Irish troops had acquitted themselves well. He complained about the actions of the Indian troops in Elizabethville and then he said that the Irish troops would have to surrender immediately. We would have to stack our weapons, move out of our positions and be ready to be taken as prisoners back into to Jadotville. Commander Quinlan, having discussed the matter with battalion headquarters and had been told that there were a UN... Aircraft on the way, which was a lie, and also been told that the relief column would come back, which was equally untrue, and uh, having found himself in virtually an impossible position, stated that he would almost certainly have to surrender. Whereupon he got a message from the battalion headquarters to say, On will to a tragant Navarre, in other words, are you deserting your men? For a brave, a courageous, and gallant army officer, and commander, as Comedan Quinlan was. This was a complete slap in the face and almost totally demoralised the man. Lucky for us, he soon retained his composure and, reluctantly, he had to go back to menongo and accept the terms, which were that we would leave our weaponry, uh, hand it over to the Katangans, move into Jadotville as prisoners.
2: It was strange. The Rhodesian Broadcasting Corporation... Published Well, we're, the fighting was still uh, in, in progress. And they published a, a, a broadcast saying, the Irish company, jadeville has been overrun. There is no account of casualties. Huh? Now, that was rebroadcast, I think, on the BBC and in some papers. Now, I'm not saying the Irish papers are involved in it, but I think some of the papers that would be read in Ireland had it.
4: It was one of the... Um unique situations as prisoners in Jadotville and in September we actually were sitting in our room, well in our room one night listening to an All Ireland final. Probably the only thing we were wondering was should somebody have mentioned the fact in Croke Park that we were actually prisoners in Jadotville at the time?
2: We never realized until much later that some of them are 50 and a half. My own Batman orderly Jimmy Redmond was a cook corporal afterwards. Great chap, great bit of stuff. And he he was wounded in the December fighting. But He, I discovered, was 15 and a half. The lad who was buried in the, the weapons pit, he was 15 and a half. And there was a third one, years and years later. The man was a CMS at the time, and he came to me and said, Sir, I've got a bit of a problem. I said, What is it? Uh, he said, it's about age. I said, we all grow old facetiously. I know, he said, I want to grow old. Oh, God, I said, it's your bloody birth cert, is it? He said, yeah. So we, we got him to a commission <laughs> of the peace, and he was adjusted. He was 16. He was the ripe age of 16, and he was a topper. And the, I think the only reliable information that came back was stuff that came back from officers and NCOs, men who sent back letters... With a Red Cross visitation. And uh, I you know for my own part, I would split it in, there was only the one letter actually. Uh, the first part would be for family, and the other would be for any information that we had about conditions of people, conditions of living, and so on, and prospects too, of course, yes.
3: This went on for four weeks. The upturn of it was that there was an agreement signed by. Chumbe, that there would be a ceasefire and part of the ceasefire thing that would be an exchange of prisoners because there was Calangay's prisoners retained as well by the UN Chambe agreed that there would be an agreement and there'd be an exchange of prisoners and uh, eventually this did happen and at the old airfield in Elizabethville we were handed back to our own people and, and the Calangay's prisoners were handed back to there. Well, I suppose, to be fair to say, in the first few days that there was confused thinking because nobody knew exactly what had happened at Chatterfield. Nobody knew the amount of of fighting and the bravery that was shown there. And I think there was some elements of our own forces who thought that this surrender should never have happened. But uh, you had to be there to realise the situation. And I'm proud with the, all of the people that were there. And uh, I've nothing but praise for my commander. And uh, in the manner in which we were left without orders and without support, I think that the company at Jatteville did a splendid job.
0: Almost 43 years on, and those who served the UN and Ireland, in Jatteville in 1961... Have questions left unanswered. Who took the decision to send them there? Why were they not supported? Why was no one honoured or mentioned for their role at Jataville? And why was Jatteville almost airbrushed from Irish military history? Was it to protect some person or organization? Was it because the company inflicted so many fatalities on the Kitanganese? Or was it because the company was forced to surrender?
1: I'm aware that many of the people who were taken prisoner there felt very angry at the fact that they had been put into such an exposed position and um, given very little opportunity of getting out and that when this surrendered, they were perceived to have done so and for very flimsy reasons. Their feeling, as expressed to me by a few, was that they were let down and that nobody ever explained why they were there and nobody ever attempted to um, justify to them their presence or the failure to take them out at an earlier
2: stage. One always knew that there was maybe a question mark among uh, certain people. Why did they have to, until after a while, they learned why? A lot of them had their nose rubbed in at the poor devils, because they had been at the bridge and knew what that tiny thing was. And it, it didn't compare with it. Was stuck for a week under the Fuga and Company.
4: However, in the case of the army um, authorities themselves, I don't think they are blameless in that there was never an inquiry held. There was never a question of any of our, um, any officer that was there giving a report. In fact, it was frowned on to even mention the Jadotville. And the, the, the sad thing of, of all was that uh, no officer in Janetville was ever recognised for the heroic actions, and indeed I'm quite aware that a number of them were recommended for awards, none of which ever took place.
3: Nobody wanted to know at the time, and nobody wants to know about it since. In order to cover up, I suppose, the problems at the higher level, I suppose Jederville could have been the one to blame. It was an easy one to blame for what happened.
2: I don't know that the UN knew where they were going. Nowadays you hear a lot about peace enforcement. We were told it was peacekeeping. Do they know what peace enforcement is now? What happened to the Dutch... Troops in over, over there in, in middle Europe, they were devils. They were left uh, in, in the lurch there, but certainly the position they were put in by the UN was unforgivable. And the UN must have known that things like that had happened before. They must have known about Chad, but they didn't want to know about Chad, because it would have an egg on too many both military and uh, civilian faces in in the UN.
1: The outstanding lessons our lesson is that those responsible for authorizing operations that is the members of the security council and those responsible for the conduct of operations that is the UN secretariat should refrain from the use of the term use of force in relation to peacekeeping or operations or at least use it with great care giving full consideration to the possible consequences. Jolliville highlighted the problems which can arise when the Security Council and the Secretariat failed to distinguish between peacekeepers and conventional military forces.